Greetings, I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. Welcome. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now, if we choose to. You likely have heard about, or are even participating in, the elections going on in the great state of Wisconsin. And the curious circumstances regarding that. This spring election, this April 7th election, was, in a manner of speaking, stopped, delayed, by order, executive order, of the executive, the governor of the state. Nonetheless, it is going on. He is Democrat Governor Tony Evers. And interestingly enough, before he made this executive proclamation, this executive order to postpone the election, four days prior to that, he stated that he had no legal authority to do so. But it didn't prevent him from going ahead and trying to do so anyway. But, of course, he was doing it on behalf of the people. Just like Hillary Rodham Clinton has always fought for womankind and for the children. (laughs) But the Supreme Court of Wisconsin, not of the United States of America, but the Wisconsin Supreme Court reversed that. And so the election goes on. And it will be fascinating to see how things turn out. Meanwhile, the great state of Maryland. I do not know the correct pronunciations here. Whether it is Maeve, which is the way it looks to me, or Maeve, or Maeve, Kennedy, Townsend, McKean, or McCain. This terrible tragedy that has befallen the Kennedy family. I've mentioned it previously. But now, her body was found in approximately 25 feet of water about two and a half miles south of her mother's home. There is still, or at the time of the discovery of her body, there were still efforts going on to locate the body of her son, Gideon Joseph Kennedy McKean or McCain whichever is the correct pronunciation, eight years of age. Just a terrible tragedy. And more information, clarification has come out now. But Maeve or Maeve or Maeve, she was the granddaughter of Robert F. Kennedy and also the grandniece of John F. Kennedy. 
her mother, Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, was previously Maryland's lieutenant governor and ran for governor, if I'm not mistaken. Now, the husband, the father, David McCain, or McCain, he stated the following. Gideon and Mavie were playing kickball by the small, shallow cove behind the house, and one of them kicked the ball under the water. The cove is protected with much calmer wind and water than in the greater Chesapeake, and I'm sure also shallower. They got into a canoe, intending simply to retrieve the ball, and somehow got pushed by wind or tide into the open bay. About 30 minutes later, they were spotted by an onlooker from land who saw them far out from shore and called the police. After that last sighting, they were not seen again. Just a horrendous... monstrous tragedy. And like so many, it was preventable. But the great irony here is that the reason that she and her family were there, it was to shelter in place. They had left their home in Washington, D.C. to go shelter in place at her mother's home a short distance, I have read, from Annapolis. And then it took a half hour before anybody recognized that anything was wrong, before anybody realized that. And at the time that the call was made to 911, as late as that was, and that would have been when they were approximately in the position where the canoe capsized. I don't understand why a Coast Guard helicopter couldn't have been dispatched immediately with rescue divers, so on and so forth. If it had been discovered earlier, it would seem like a launch could have been sent from the Naval Academy but just a terrible tragedy for the Kennedy family once again. For Mavie or Maeve McKean and her son Gideon. And for the whole family that this will reverberate through for ever and a day. Well, across the pond, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, he was admitted to hospital, as they put it, in London with persistent symptoms of coronavirus on Sunday evening. And the statement was that, quote, the Prime Minister has been under the care of doctors at St. Thomas's Hospital in London after being admitted with persistent symptoms of coronavirus. 
Over the course of Monday afternoon, the condition of the prime minister has worsened, and on the advice of his medical team, he has been moved to the intensive care unit at the hospital. And the announcement today was that he is in stable condition in intensive care, receiving oxygen support. And they stated that that was the only thing that he's receiving, that that is not the same as being on respiration, so forth, artificial respirator. He is receiving standard oxygen treatment and breathing without any other assistance. So, not on something invasive, not on a ventilator per se, but receiving oxygen. But, it is alarming that his condition deteriorated so quickly and to the extent that it did here the other day. Meanwhile, back on this side of the pond, one of the many players in the Trump administration who, like the commander-in-chief and like so many others, is want to make incredible statements, (laughs) as in not credible. United States Surgeon General Jerome Adams, he warned that this week will be the nation's worst. But these are his words, quote, This is going to be the hardest and the saddest week of most Americans' lives, quite frankly. This is going to be our Pearl Harbor moment, our 9-11 moment, only it's not going to be localized. It's going to be happening all over the country, and I want America to understand that, end quote. Really, this is going to be the hardest and the saddest week of most Americans' lives? Americans that have suffered tragedies like the Kennedy family, tragedies like the destruction of their sons and or daughters over in Iraq and Afghanistan and so forth, personal tragedies that their children, their family, their loved ones have suffered monstrous, rapacious, murderous violence here in the land of the free, home of the brave. Oh, but this is going to be the hardest and the saddest week of most Americans' lives. What a lie. Or, if you prefer, falsehood. But the following statement was even more extraordinary in some respects. This is going to be our Pearl Harbor moment, our 9-11 moment. Only it's not going to be localized. It's going to be happening all over the country, 
And I want America to understand that. There is the stupidity and the rank ignorance in this statement. And then there is something else. So the stupidity and the ignorance is this. The idea that the Pearl Harbor surprise attack back December 7th, 1941, the idea that that was localized, yes, that attack took place, Diamond Head, Oahu, Hawaii, Hawaii, but where were all of those sailors from? Where were all of the personnel from? Were they all from Oahu, Hawaii? Or were they from throughout the United States? All over the United States. All over the country. What about 9-11, September 11th, 2001, Islamist terrorist surprise attack? The 3,000 plus people that perished, were they all from New York City, lifelong residents of New York City? Were they really? Those who died down in Washington, D.C., those who died in a field in Pennsylvania, as well as those who died at the World Trade Center, including first responders and what have you, were they all died in the wool, lifelong, born and bred residents of New York City? Were they all Americans? I mean, the rank stupidity and ignorance of this is beyond the pale. And this is from whom? Is this from some intern? No, this is the United States Surgeon General. Jerome Adams. But another point with regard to this, Jim, the only way that this could be likened to a Pearl Harbor moment, as he put it, which, of course, lasted much more than a moment, or a 9-11 moment, which again lasted much more than a moment, the only way that it could even faintly, remotely resemble those is as this would be a surprise terrorist or terror attack of the United States of America Accomplished by communist China. That's the only way. I don't mean to say that that's what he's saying. No, I think he is just displaying gross stupidity and ignorance. But outstanding. Again, the administration just has so many outstanding spokespeople. And I... We'll get to that further in a little bit. But this is in keeping with the president himself, who is forever making the most offensive, inane, stupid statements, going back to when he initiated his presidential campaign to become president. But moving on. 
another key figure in the administration, but one who has been out of the limelight for a while and one who serves in a capacity not completely, utterly, totally unlike that of the United States Surgeon General, Robert Redfield. He is the director of the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC. And he stated just the other day, quote, I think you're going to see the numbers are in fact going to be much less than what would have been predicted by the models, end quote. Hopefully he's right. And again, I have made a point of this time and again to be relying so slavishly on these artificially constructed models is akin to folly. It's not that they can't be right, (laughs) but they sure can be wrong, as is seen with the ever-so-sophisticated modeling that is done with regard to economics, monetary policy, fiscal policy, economic stimulus, and all manner of other things. Not to mention, with regard to political campaigns and outcomes, expected outcomes, what have you. But he goes on to say the following, quote, Models are only as good as their assumptions. Obviously, There are a lot of unknowns about the virus. A model should never be used to assume that we have a number. End quote. Referring to a specific number of fatalities, for instance. But he goes on to say, quote, CDC, Centers for Disease Control, had models early on. They had their own models. We didn't really publicize the models. We used them internally to understand mitigation strategies. End quote. So I I am hopeful that what he has said, what Redfield, the director of the Centers for Disease Control, has said, is closer to correct. (laughs) I am hopeful. Meanwhile, Anthony Fauci, that great leader within the administration, doctor, of course, Anthony Fauci, he's the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Dr. Anthony Fauci, hereafter referred to as Fauci. I have referred to him as Fauci previously. Well, he said the following, quote, I don't accept every day that we're going to have to have 100,000 to 200,000 deaths. I think we can really bring that down, no matter what a model says, end quote. 
Now, he didn't say 100,000 to 240,000, which was their actual projection, which was announced to the press. And I rounded up from 240,000 to 250,000, a quarter of a million, saying, let's just, you know, be realistic about that. It's between 100,000 and a quarter of a million. Terrible any way you take it. Whether it's a tenth of a million people, a quarter of a million people, it is horrendous. But he, too, points up that these models that generate these predictions, these projections, that they are not to be believed as being absolutely accurate predictors of what will take place. But another figure, and they come and they go, and there's the revolving door syndrome there in the Trump administration, as there has been in previous administrations. Fauci, he has stated regarding this wonder drug, that's being touted as being such, which I probably will mispronounce, hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. Fauci has stated that signs of this drug's efficacy are strictly anecdotal as of this point in time. Whereas the Donald, President Trump, Donald Trump Sr., and an advisor of his, Peter Navarro, who's an economist with a Ph.D., (laughs) yes, yes, they take a different view. They believe that this drug This drug is the answer or one of the answers and must be rushed into production and so forth. And maybe so, but I'm not going to take their word for it, just the same. Meanwhile, regarding the economic quagmire, malaise, to use a word that James Earl Carter Jr. Jimmy Carter used for the economic stagnation and recession during his presidency, there is now a movement, you know, and it's been, this has been fluid, this has been ongoing, but to put together another economic package, partially economic stimulus intended for businesses, for small businesses, but also unemployment benefits being extended and also another series of direct checks to taxpayers. Yes, another series, even though you and I have not received the first series, but to line up another series, another in this 
economic assistance. So this package, it's being talked about being more than $1 trillion, but it's not definitive by any means. But there is agreement by the Democrat leadership of the House, by President Trump himself, by various Republicans in Congress and what have you. Going back just a wee little bit, really, a little over a week ago, let's say a week and a half ago, a certain fiery young woman who goes by the initials AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she on the floor of the House, decried crumbs for our families being meted out. That that's what the $2.2 trillion package, economic stimulus package, entailed. And I happen to think that she is right about that. That that is a right statement, even though she made it. (laughs) Not because she made it, but in spite of the fact that she made it. She also said, quote, hospital workers do not have protective equipment. We don't have the necessary ventilators, end quote. There is truth within that. But now there's a new package that's being put together which will provide additional crumbs and, perchance, will include something in the way of additional help for hospital workers and so forth. Meanwhile, back to the great spokespeople for this administration. The most curious case that there has been. But before I get to that, let me just say this. I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. And whatever is right and true and good in these programs is thanks to God Almighty and His Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Whatever is lacking, erring, deficient, that is due to me. That is on me. That is my fault. I've made mention before regarding Stephanie Grisham. Stephanie Grisham, who served at the pleasure of First Lady Melania Trump before she was tapped to serve as the press secretary following the departure of Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Well, Stephanie Grisham, who has been there for a year or so, or more, I believe, as press secretary, she has now been relieved of her duties. What duties were they anyway? She did not hold a single solitary press briefing while she was White House press secretary. 
boy, you should snatch up work like that if you can get it. You know, I mean, that is one. Oh, that is just one outstanding kind of a position to have right there. But our welfare press secretary, you know, serving in this great capacity for a year plus, I believe, and not one single solitary press briefing, press conference, and now she leaves quietly too. It's just extraordinary. But guess what? She's not being given the bum's rush. You know, the way that the president treats most people that are being moved, shall we say, from a high-profile position. No, no, no. She is returning to serve at the pleasure of First Lady Melania Trump. In what capacity? Gopher or something like that? No, no. As Melania Trump's chief of staff. This is the way that this president governs. This is his leadership style. What is all important, what is only important, is whether you are viewed by the president as being loyal, true blue to him. Nothing else matters. (laughs) So, this president, outstanding. Well, this move of relocating Stephanie Grisham from press secretary now to chief of staff for Melania Trump. This is the doing of, drumroll please, President Donald Trump's brand spanking new chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Well, it's a very reasonable thing to do. And one of his very first moves. Meanwhile, he is bringing in a woman, Kaylee McEnany, or something like that. She was a campaign spokeswoman for Donald Trump in the 2020 campaign. Not the 2016 campaign, but in the 2020 campaign up until now. So the question in my mind is this. Who's going to become campaign spokeswoman, presumably woman, person, whatever, for the 2020 campaign in her absence? I don't know. Should be fascinating. Perhaps someone like Hope Hicks. I don't know. But in any case, Kaylee will now be the press secretary. I am guessing, though, the following, that given that she is being removed from an important position, we're talking about seven months 
less than seven months to the election, right? So to move her from the campaign to White House press secretary, that's actually very, very significant. It's saying that this administration recognizes, (laughs) belatedly, recognizes the need, the importance to put out fires, to handle things communications-wise from the White House, that that is more important to this president's re-election than the re-election campaign. But that's not the only person being brought in to the White House relative to communications. No. Also, Alyssa Farah, currently spokeswoman for the Defense Department, being moved from the Defense Department to become director of strategic communications. Strategic. It sounds like something in the Defense Department, doesn't it? But no, it's at the White House, and it's... Uh, it's new. I, you know, I, it's all very exciting. Then there's Kellyanne Conway, who's last I knew was communications director. And Kellyanne has always done a superlative job. But just fascinating, I think, as far as what's going on there. But let me get down to a statement by the commander in chief. Now, If you want to hear stellar communication, please listen closely while I quote, directly quote, the president. Quote, we've done a poor job on press relationships, and I guess I don't know who to blame for that. Maybe I can blame ourselves for that. I will blame ourselves. But I think we've done a great job. I think we've done a poor job in terms of press relationship, end quote. I have to repeat that so that you can... (laughs) Try to roll that one around in your mind's eyes. How is it possible to communicate like that? It is stupendously stupid, but it's beyond that. It is extraordinarily, breathtakingly self-serving. And it's also unspeakably bad English, (laughs) but it's illiteracy. Quote, we've done a poor job on press relationships, and I guess I don't know who to blame for that. End quote. That's right. Donald Trump, the tweeter-in-chief, the commander-in-chief, the president, the chief executive, of this nation, who is also the blame anyone but me, chief. 
the chief blamer. Never taking responsibility. Always finding someone to blame. Always casting about for a scapegoat. Always. I don't know who to blame for that. There's got to be somebody I can blame for that. Well, he's not blaming Stephanie Grisham, (laughs) but moving on. Quote, maybe I can blame ourselves for that. That is functionally illiterate from this brilliant man. That's right. He would have us believe he's brilliant. He's forever telling everybody who will listen how smart he is. (laughs) Maybe I can blame ourselves for that. (laughs) And then I will blame ourselves. But I think we've done a great job. When did he think that we had done a great job? Was it before or after he thought that we've done a poor job? I think we've done a poor job in terms of press relationship. So back to believing we've done a poor job. This is incredible, isn't it? I mean, this is why he's the tweeter-in-chief, people. This is why. Because it is safer for him to be tweeting. Even though he gets himself in massive amounts of trouble with his tweeting, it is safer for him to be tweeting. But he's just... He should get somebody really good as press secretary. Someone like Kellyanne Conway. And just let them do all of the talking. And just smile. He's also, for me, he's impossible to watch. He's an effeminate speaker. Oh, yes, he's got his big hands he's so proud of. Certainly bigger than Mark Cuban's, based on what I've seen, based on the photos. And he's so proud of it. I mean, he is just, talk about vulgar, talk about obscene. Well, that's our president. But he's effeminate in how he speaks, how he gestures, absolutely effeminate. He has been since the beginning, going all the way back to when he was a little boy, no doubt. But you watch him in any video. I dare you to watch a video of him speaking. If you need to turn the sound down or turn it off because he's too hard to listen to, do that. Because (laughs) I can't stand to listen to him or to watch him. But watch him. Watch his gestures. One minute worth. It doesn't have to be hours. And you tell me it's not effeminate. All right? Now, this is dangerous to say this sort of thing, because after all, this is the kind of comments about 
Vladimir Putin that has gotten people assassinated. Assassinated in the West, mind you. But it's a fact of all the incredibly weak (laughs) weakness that he conveys. I've never believed in body language and that sort of thing. But his body language, goodness gracious. If that's conveying strength, (laughs) please. Meanwhile, again, this outstanding administration of the president. First and foremost, as I go into this concerning the USS Theodore Roosevelt. Let me preface it by saying this. Once upon a time long ago, there was a man who was many things. Gentleman, farmer, planter, soldier, He was the chief commander during the War for Independence, otherwise known as the Revolutionary War, who became this nation's first president. But he was one of the leaders, the statesman leaders, before this nation was a nation in bringing about nationhood. And because he became president, because he became the first president, the presidency has always been known. The office of the presidency and those who serve the public in that office as commander-in-chief. And yet, we have had so many presidents who are just utterly ignorant of military. And we've had many in recent decades in particular who despise the military and have done everything in their power to destroy it to destroy it from inside out, to feminize it, neuter it, neutralize it, to undermine it in every way, to subvert it, pervert it, corrupt it, destroy it. There is something very dangerous about putting people in position as commander-in-chief who have absolutely no understanding of military, nor respect for. Something very dangerous about that. Does that mean that we should have a requirement that presidents be military men? No. But commander-in-chief, commander-in-chief really needs to be people that have some 
modicum of understanding and respect for military. Unlike the Bill Clintons, the Barack Hussein Obamas, the Donald Trumps. And the George Bushes and on it goes. No, it's no guarantee that they're going to be any good if they have military background and experience. Just look at Jimmy Carter, who did his level best to gut our military. To subvert our academies and so forth. So no, there's no guarantee at all. But... If you get people into that position who don't have any military understanding or at least respect and appreciation, it is problematic. How we ever came to have all of these civilian secretaries of the military is a nightmare. Going back to the likes of Robert McNamara, who was so monstrously incompetent back in the Vietnam era. But President Trump's current acting secretary of the Navy is horrendous and a reflection of the commander in chief whom he served. And in a profanity-laced tirade, which he delivered to the crew of the nuclear-powered aircraft carrier USS Theodore Roosevelt, in which he railed against the crew for cheering their captain when he left the aircraft carrier, after being removed as commander. Captain Brett E. Crozier. As he walked down the gangway and left the ship after being removed from being commander. Removed for what? Removed for incompetence? No. For open insubordination, no. But for sending a letter to Navy brass pleading for help with regard to spread of the coronavirus on board his ship. And this this arrogant, horrible excuse of the acting Navy secretary. The way that he attempted to shame the crew, to shame the commander who had been relieved of duty, for him to get to do that is a direct indictment of his commander in chief and is utterly inexcusable. It was so bad, so bad 
that he was nudged into issuing a kind of sort of apology today. But yesterday, Commander-in-Chief Trump again went after Captain Crozier for writing a letter that he did not write to the public. He did not write it to the press. He wrote it to Navy Brass, and it was made public, which he had no control over. And President Trump, who dodged the draft over and over and over and over again, the most spectacularly, stupendously horrendous time, claiming he had bone spurs, which he never had treated, never caused him a problem, haven't caused him a problem with playing golf or you know anything else. But he, with his vast military knowledge, his vast military understanding, his deep respect for the military that he spit on when he said regarding his not going to Vietnam, he wasn't stupid. (laughs) Everybody else, everybody that went was stupid was what he was saying. That's the only honest way to take that. But He stated that Crozier displayed military weakness. This from Donald Trump Sr. Well, this acting Navy secretary, he is the poobah who removed Captain Crozier from being commander of the USS Theodore Roosevelt. Let me just give you a few quotes pertaining to this. Mr. Modley's decision to remove Captain Crozier without first conducting an investigation went contrary to the wishes of both the Navy's top admiral, Michael M. Gilday, the chief of naval operations, and the military's top officer, General Mark A. Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. How do you like them apples? But this civilian, appointed by Trump, he gets to act unilaterally. Additionally, quote, I am a Called at the content of his address to the crew. End quote. Retired Admiral Mike Mullen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under former presidents Barack Hussein Obama and George W. Bush. And then one final one. Quote. At its core, this is about an aircraft carrier skipper who sees an imminent threat and is forced 
to make a decision that risks his career in the act of what he believes to be the safety of the near 5,000 members of his crew. End quote. That from former Navy Secretary under George Bush, Sean O'Keefe. And he adds this quote, that is more than enough to justify the Navy leadership rendering the benefit of the doubt to the deployed commander, end quote. I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now if we choose to. Thank you.